But tonight, we're talking about the gospel and marriage. And uh, what we're going to see is that marriage is the gift of God to us. Okay? But our sin and brokenness complicates that gift, and, and it gets in the way of us enjoying the good gift of marriage that God has given us. But by the grace of God in the gospel, through Jesus, we can actually experience the great intimacy and delight and commitment that God intended for us to have in marriage all along. So that's what we're going to see tonight. And uh, our passage tonight, uh, we have two of them. Uh, One of them is going to be on the screen and the other one is not. But we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. So uh, if you have a Bible and you want to turn to Genesis chapter 2, or as Luke always says, a digital device, you can uh, turn to Genesis chapter 2, verses uh, 18 through 25, uh, and then it will be projected on the screen as well. That's the first passage. So let's, let's read together. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens but, and to every uh, beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And our second text is uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is the word of the Lord for us tonight. Let's pray together and ask God to bless our time. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your great love and kindness to us, seen most clearly and certainly in Jesus Christ, but also seen clearly in marriage and the good gift that you have given us. And um, Father, we come here tonight, and uh, many of us are probably really happy with our marriages, and and things uh, at this point are comfortable and um, Some of us also probably are are struggling. Uh, We don't feel connected or intimate to our spouse, or maybe circumstances are just hard for us. Uh, And even some of us may be single, Lord, longing to be married. And and I just pray that tonight, that for all of us, you would meet us with your grace and encourage us and strengthen our faith and hope in you. And do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Uh, Be our God and Savior. And so we ask that you would glorify yourself tonight. We ask it... uh, confidently, because we know you love us. Amen. So uh, when Rachel and I got married in 1994, it's been a little while, um, like wedding videos were usually like they stuck a video on the tripod in the back of the church, and then, you know, you could see the person coming down the aisle from the back if you ever watched it again, which I think we did once or twice. And, uh, and hopefully you could hear the audio of the vows. That's what you wanted to get. But things have really changed uh, since we were married 20 and a half years ago. And nowadays, some people have this like big production, not everybody, but this big production, these big wedding videos, it has multiple cameras. 
and uh, like awesome video editing. And as I was researching for the sermon, I came across a few of them. I thought they were interesting. Um, they were interesting because of the titles, really. The titles kind of reflect a lot of, of what people think about marriage. And then even as I thought about it more and more, I thought, yeah, that, that reflects some of my attitudes about marriage sometimes too. So uh, let's look at a few of these titles. Here's the first one uh, that I found. I didn't watch the video, but I'm going to because I'm curious. Uh, it says, I wouldn't live in the squalor if I didn't love you. And so clearly there's some kind of uh, some strong commitment there at least, but there may be some interesting dinner discussions going on in that marriage. Uh, but we felt there. The next one, today you make my life complete. Certainly there are times when we feel like that, and uh, we might thank Jerry Maguire for that one. I don't know, but, um, but it's a good one. Uh, the next one, so let's hop into this rowboat together and start rowing. Those are the optimists, I think. And then this one I've never said but thought, you've realized finally that I'm right. Uh, these are some interesting titles for, uh, for wedding videos, you know, and I'm just curious, though. Sometimes it does reflect our attitude on marriage. But um, in Genesis, we're going to see that, that the Bible presents a view of marriage that does actually encompass some of those thoughts. Um, but it's a wonderful view of marriage. And, and the biblical view of marriage is that, that marriage is this unique relationship created by God between a husband and a wife, one of intense delight and knowing and commitment, and that the result of that relationship is uh, that God is glorified and that the man and the woman are enabled to uh, reflect God's image in the world more fully. So that's the, what we're going to see tonight about marriage in, in Genesis chapter 2. Um, if we'd begun reading our passage, rather than in chapter 2, if we would have backed up to chapter 1, you would realize how striking our passage is. I probably didn't read it well because I should have paused when I read, uh, it's not good. Because that's a striking statement for God to say in Genesis chapter 2. You know, we're not too, uh, uh, there's no sin in the world at this point. You know, in Genesis chapter 1, God is over and over repeating, everything I've done is good. And on the first day, God creates everything. And you know what he says at the end of the day? It's good. On the second day, everything that God creates, he reviews it. And what does he say? It's good. And that goes on and on and on until the seventh day. So then when we zoom in on the creation of the man and woman and take this more micro view of what's going on, it's really striking that that God would say, it's not good that man would be alone. So we have to ask um, ourselves, what's not good about it? You know, he's surrounded by all all of God's creation. You know, the animals are there, so probably had man's best friend. I know some guys sometimes are thinking, yeah, what is not good about that? He was all alone. Some of you introverts would like that, I think. You know, just give me an hour alone in my bedroom and don't talk to me. You know, some of you are not in your head, so you understand. Other people are like, no, I want to be around people all the time. Okay? So it wasn't good that Adam was alone. And, and the reason is because although he's surrounded by all of creation, you know, God above him, not creation, but the creator, and the animals below him, but there's no one like him. There's no one that he can have this relationship with. You know, God created Adam for relationship. He enabled him to have this vertical relationship with God, the loving creator and the loved creature. Okay? But he also created him to have this horizontal relationship with other people. And as of yet, there was no one to have the relationship with. And God's plan for people, for mankind, was that they would spread and fill the earth and reflect his glory and cultivate it and take care of all of God's creation as his stewards. But Adam was insufficient to do that. He couldn't do that for himself. He was insufficient to reflect this image of God. 
He was not in and of himself sufficient biologically to do this. He couldn't have kids on his own. He needed a counterpart. He needed a wife. He was insufficient relationally. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit always have existed for all time and all eternity together in loving fellowship. The Father, the Spirit, and the Son loving and honoring and knowing one another. Who was there like Adam? Who was there for Adam to know? No one. So it was insufficient. So it was not good that he was alone. And so God's assessment was that Adam needed a helper, one that was fit for him. So in Genesis 2, 19, God begins this interesting parade of animals, and he begins to bring all the the birds of the air and the beasts of the field before Adam. And Adam, exercising the authority God had given him, is naming them, giving them, you know, Mr. Horse, Mrs. Horse. You know, is that, I know I have boots on, but I really don't know the difference uh, on the names. Anyways, Marin, oh, was it Philly and Stallion? Uh, you know, Cow, Mr. Cow and Mr., Mrs. Cow, things like that, right? And as this parade of animals comes along, um, there's nobody that's for him. There's no helper that's fit for him. So we might want to stop and ask, well, what kind of helper did God intend? What was this helper? Because um, I think in our culture, sometimes we think of, uh, you know, a teacher and a teacher's aide, right? And the teacher's aide is in some ways subordinate or, in, I don't want to say inferior, but lesser than the teacher, right? Or we think of a physician and a physician's assistant, right? So our concept of helper is often the, 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 the helper is the subordinate person, the inferior person might be a better word to say, inferior. But that's not the picture that God gives us in Genesis. The same word that, that God gives us in Genesis to describe this helper that he was going to bring to Adam is also the same word that Moses uses to describe God's help for him when he saved Moses and the people from Pharaoh. Moses says in, in Exodus 18.4, the God of my ancestors was my helper. He rescued me from the sword of Pharaoh. So the idea of a helper is not an inferior, but someone who can actually supply the much-needed aid and comfort and assistance that was lacking, that Adam was insufficient in and of himself to do. And, you know, that's like the same way in our own marriages, right? Surely um, our church actually has quite a few married people and, and then quite a few that aren't married, but... But in the marriages, you can think about it, or you think of your parents. Like, usually, each parent has some gift or skill that the other doesn't, correct? I had to hang some diplomas in my office uh, this week, last week. And if I would have tried to do that on my own, uh, it would have, I would still be doing it. It would have taken me three or four weeks to get all four of those things evenly spaced and hung well, right? I, I'm just not very precise. Some of us are more flexible with our measurements, right? Every time I cut, it's too short, and it keeps getting shorter, Right? But Rachel, she comes to my office, and in 45 minutes, she's got everything laid out and, and tells me where to put the nail, and I do it, and hangs up there, and it's beautiful, right? Was she inferior when she brought that help to me? No. Was I inferior? No. But it was the help that I needed, right? So the idea of a helper um, is one that supplies this needed help and comfort that the other was insufficient in and of themselves to have, okay? But it's not just... A helper, this helper had to be one that was fit for Adam. This idea of fitness, literally it means like one opposite. Like one opposite. There was a correspondence. There's a, um, a matching. It's not just that Eve would be human, but in every way she would match up to Adam 
to supply what he was lacking, what he needed, so that they could reflect God's image and glorify God in the earth together. So it's almost like um, if, you, if you know furniture, some fine furniture has dovetails, right? And the one board is a little different than the, than the other board, and they have different cuts, but they line up perfectly together. And that's the picture of this helper who is fit for Adam in marriage. She's exactly what he needed so that together the parts will add up to be more than, uh, together than they are individually. So, so as this parade goes on, though, I kind of got ahead of myself. Adam needs this helper and one that's fit for him, but there isn't one there. You know, and I, I don't know. I mean, it's, this is before sin and the fall. This is before there was suffering and evil in the world. And, but I'm wondering, did Adam have like this hunger or this knowledge or longing? I think he did. Like, well, what's going on here? You know, once again, Mr. Horse and Mrs. Horse, but well, what about me? What about me? And this longing goes on. And, and then the commentator, the scripture tells us down in, uh, in verse 22 and 2020, um, there was not a helper fit for Adam found. So what does God do in verse 22? He puts Adam under the first anesthetic procedure. A lot of doctors in here. God is a doctor, apparently. He puts him to sleep. He does surgery and removes a rib. And from the same stuff that Adam is made of, not anything below him, not anything different than him, but from the stuff of Adam, God makes Eve. And in verse 22, he brings Eve to Adam. And I think this tells us that he did have this longing. As, as this time, this procession goes on, he says, at last, here she is. Whoa. Wow. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. You know, this is who he's been waiting for. Finally. Right? And I think maybe you can remember that delight in your spouse. And, and one of the things about marriage is sometimes that delight ebbs and flows, you know. But we want to recall delighting in our spouses and, and, and loving them and being thrilled with them. And there's some thrill here. You know, I, I remember the first time I saw Rachel. She says she met me before that, but I didn't remember that. So the first time I remember meeting Rachel, because I was clueless, that's why. I was clueless. Um, I heard this knock at the door and I opened it. And it was in the summertime. I was in summer school. And whoa, who is this girl, this lovely creature knocking on my door with Ray-Ban sunglasses and long brown hair. This is in the 90s, right? Wow. And then I got to know her. And I found out, wow, we like the same things. She loves Jesus, and I love Jesus, and she reads some of the same books that I read, and, and we're really similar. Different. I can't measure. But real similar. This is amazing. I was so delighted, right? And for Adam, he sees Eve, and he's delighted. Can't believe it. Finally, here she is. So God gives us marriage so that, that we won't be alone and so that we will be able to delight in another person in this very special relationship. And, and Genesis 24 tells us about the relationship. Let me read it to you. Okay? Back in Genesis 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. And hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and the wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. A special relationship is created here, one that supersedes all other human relationships. It doesn't eliminate them. You still have parents, right? You still owe them honor and love and respect. But on the, the tree of the hierarchy of priorities, it's like God, my spouse, and my family, and my church family, right? 
if we had to, to say it that way. There's this new relationship, this new covenant created between these two people, a, a relationship of deep delight and deep commitment, but not just that deep knowing. And the scriptures say they were naked and unashamed. Like, I'm uncomfortable saying that right now, that they were naked and unashamed because the idea of standing naked before anyone is, like, unsettling. I don't even like to go to the doctor, you know? But they were naked and unashamed, deep knowing with no fear and no shame. Um, I got on uh, the Internet again to do some research, and Forbes.com has the 10 uh, most common business-related anxiety-producing dreams. I'll try to say that. Business-related anxiety-producing dreams, right? And guess what, like number seven was? The dream that somehow, and, and many of you have had this dream in different contexts. Somehow you ended up at work naked or in your underwear or something like that, and yet no one else noticed, but you were, but you were there, and somehow you couldn't figure out, like, you know, how am I going to keep them from noticing, right? As human beings, we just have this fear of being found out, of, of falling short. And we long for a relationship where we can be really known and really loved without that fear. And in the first marriage, we see that that's exactly what God had given them. Deep knowledge and love with no fear. They were naked, and yet they were unashamed. So this marriage is the paradigm for, for all marriages. This unique relationship between a husband and a wife of a deep knowing, commitment, and delight that reflects God's glory and and his image. But the truth is that we don't really often or sometimes we don't experience that here in life now. So with this great gift of marriage, now we also have the grief of marriage. And the grief of marriage is that our knowing and delighting and committing is directly colliding and interfered with by the reality of our sin and brokenness and the brokenness of the world. You know, how can that be? How do we get from Genesis chapter 2, this great loving relationship, to, to where we are today? Well, Genesis chapter 3, it didn't take long. The man and the woman rebel against God and they sin. And because of that sin, they are guilty before God. And in that guilt, Genesis chapter 3 tells us that the first man and the first woman experienced the first attempt to hide from themselves and from each other and from God. So they sew plants together as if somehow covering their body could cover their shame and their guilt. But it doesn't work. And we know what it's like to need to cover our shame and our guilt, even today in our marriages. The reality is that even after that, they had the first marital fight. You know, God comes to talk to Adam. What happened? And Adam says, you know, well, it was Eve's fault. He just throws her under the bus. It was all her fault. The first blaming between a husband and a wife, the first fight, right? And we know that that's a reality for us today as well at times. The reality is that every marriage is more difficult and different than we really imagined it to be. That your ideas about marriage probably changed about a day after you were married. Not because marriages went from this idea of perfection to terrible. It's just different. Marriage is different, and sometimes it's difficult. So have you come to the point in your relationships and in your marriages where you face that? That marriage is actually different and more difficult than you realize? You know, every man and woman comes to our marriage with sinful tendencies and habits um, and the effects of the brokenness of the world, and we bring that into this very special relationship. 
And that's actually where we're closest to someone that might actually see what's going on in our hearts, and it's scary. You know, uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman, some of you don't know who he is, but he's a, he's a songwriter, Christian songwriter. He writes a song, and uh, the chorus, or at least one of the verses says, If the truth was known and a light was shown on every hidden corner of my heart, most would turn away and shake their heads and say, man, that guy's still got a long way to go. And the truth is that shame and guilt, we still experience that in the marriage, and God didn't intend for it to be like that. So we we come to marriage, and uh, we kind of think it's like Cinderella, right? Y'all remember Cinderella? Anybody ever watched that as a kid? I'm not embarrassed to say I liked it. I'm not, I'm, it was good. You know, and first of all, Cinderella, she can sing so sweetly that the birds will land and sing with her. You know, she and Thomas Aquinas. Um, um, so she's very sweet. And yet, even in the face of cruelty, right, she's kind. Because her stepmothers and stepmother and sisters are really unkind to her. And the prince is a pretty good guy. You know, in face of all the charms and allure of the kingdom, he is stalwart and he searches for his true love, Right. And we kind of think of ourselves as, yeah, that's what I'm bringing to the marriage, right? No one ever thinks they're the stepsister, right? Desperately wanting love, but also willing to kind of be nasty about it to get what they want. Not really concerned about anybody else. But the truth is, when we get married, we all bring a little bit of that stepsister with us. And we need God's grace in that situation. But it's not just sin. Um, It's also brokenness. Let's go back to Cinderella for a second. Do you really think that if your dad died and your stepmother was awful to you and your stepsisters tried to subvert the love of your life that you would enter in this marriage without trust issues? Right? Like Cinderella, she's going to need to talk to somebody. Right? She's going to need some help. And the truth is that none of us enter uh, our marriages as blank slates. Right? Tabula Russell, we all come with the impact of the world on us and our experiences in our life. Um, both the consequences of our own sin and the sin of others against us at times. Um, and so we need to be aware of that when we come to the marriage, that the reality is that, that our own sin and the brokenness of the world does impact our ability to um, enjoy and to uh, thrive in this beautiful gift of marriage that God gives us. So have you thought about how your own brokenness complicates your life and your spouse and your, in your marriage? Are you willing to sit down and talk with each other about that? Maybe you're willing to share some of this brokenness and how you feel. I think that's really critical, and I would encourage you to do that. So um, when we suffer in marriage, because we live in a world that is, is not the way that it's supposed to be, it very often triggers us in us an, an understandable, deep desire to protect ourselves and not to risk loving. Um, and also a selfish self-protection. But despite it all, we know that, that we were created for better things. And so um, I'd like to read a, a quote from uh, Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. I don't, if you haven't read it, um, I, I would recommend it. It's a great book. Um, I've skim read it, so I shouldn't, I don't want to act like I've read it all, but it was certainly helpful to me in a lot of areas. And this quote was very impactful, which actually my wife pointed out to me. When over the years someone has seen you at your worst and knows you with all your strengths and flaws, yet commits him or herself to you wholly. It's a consummate experience. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. 
but to be fully known and truly loved as well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and it fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. So the question is, how do we experience that kind of love in marriage in our own relationships? And the truth is that it's only by the love of God and through the love of God that we will have the grace that we need to love our husband and wife in the way that God intended for us. And so that's where we would move to our second text tonight, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. And it begins, For the love of Christ controls us or compels us. The love of Christ. That's Christ's love, as Paul's going to point out. That's Christ's love for you and for me. The love that he has for us is so strong as in Philippians chapter 2 tells us, he's willing to put aside for a time all the glory that he was due, the privilege that was his by right, the convenience, the, the worship, the honor that he was due, and to come live humbly an obedient life to his father. And he was willing to be so obedient even to death. And why was that? Why did he die? To die the death that we deserve for our rebellion against God so that we could have this new life that was his all along with God forever. That's the love of Christ that compels us. But it's not just the love of Christ, it's, it's our love for Christ. See, the love of Christ can be translated both ways, and many times Paul, and I think in this case, means both. He means God's love for us in Christ. He also means our love for God, because what does he say? We've concluded this, that Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for who? For themselves, but instead for him who died and was raised for them. And so the strength, the grace that we need to love our spouses, to forgive our spouses, to keep on keeping on when things are hard, comes from the love of Christ. So when we think, and there will be times in marriage I mean, let's talk about a good marriage. I shouldn't, I didn't write it down, but a good marriage, I mean, is a marriage founded on the grace and love of God. That's a good marriage. There's no marriage that you don't have fights. There's no marriage where you don't have conflict. There's no marriage where things aren't hard at times. Okay? But a good marriage, there's not any credit to the people in it. It's all a credit to God and His grace as they come and rely solely on Him to provide what they and themselves are insufficient to do. So when we think, I, and you'll have times like this, I don't, don't want to, to love like that. This does not please me. This is hard. I don't like it. When we think that, the love of Christ compels us, both compels and propels and energizes and strengthens so that we can actually love. And when things are going great and we're tempted to think, I want to keep working really hard on this marriage because this really is, is great and pleasing to me. And I want to work on it really hard because it's really satisfying. And we begin to turn our marriage into this transactional thing where, like, I will love and care for you. And I'm working really hard at this. And you know what? I'm expecting you to work really hard too. So there's a payoff for me. When we begin to do that, the love of Christ compels us and says, don't, don't live for that. Live for Christ. Love for Christ. 
the one who died and was raised for you. So either way, the love of Christ compels us. Because we've concluded that Christ died for us and was raised for us. And we shouldn't live for ourselves like that anymore. So how are we going to love and experience this great gift of marriage in the middle of the grief of marriage? It's only by the grace of God and the love of Christ. So if you would, let's take a moment and let's pray together about that. Father God, we thank you for your goodness and kindness to us in Christ. While we were still sinners, you died for us. And it's not just that you saved us, but then you adopted us into your family. And you lavish and give us great grace and mercy. And you you cast our sins as far as the east is from the west from us. And and you have great plans for us to, to, to make us more and more to be the people that you intended for us to be all along. Those that, that reflect the glory of God by conforming us to the image of Christ. So, Father, we thank you for your great love for us. And wherever we are in our marriages, Lord, there's no married person that has not sinned against their spouse. I pray for the grace. I pray for your grace to strengthen us, your love to strengthen us, that we would forgive our spouses if they've sinned against us and when they do. And I pray for your strengthening, that when things are hard, you will, you will strengthen us to go on and love because you first loved us. And once again, Lord, for those that long to be married and are not yet married, Lord, I pray for your grace to meet them too and to be sufficient for them in their need. So, Lord, we come to you tonight, and we thank you for the good gift of marriage, and we celebrate the kindness that you've shown to us in, in, in giving us spouses and in giving us family relationships. We ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.